Ecclesiastes 11, verses 1 through 6. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way, of the, the, way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning... Sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This ends the reading of God's Word. Uh, We've been shown through our study in Ecclesiastes that an under-the-sun perspective of life, that is an under-the-sun worldview, um, only leads to pessimism and despair. Because life from a a mere horizontal um, view um, is indeed purposeless and it is vanity, says the preacher. That is a naturalistic, humanistic um, worldview um, that ascends no higher than the thinking thinking or reasoning of man um, in no way can answer um, the perplexities of life. So... Uh, by man's experience or his rationale, um, he is not able to, to interpret um, the meaning and purpose of life. So all avenues, be they of uh, philosophy, uh, pleasure, popularity, these are all avenues uh, for which Koaleth, uh, the preacher, has pursued in order to, to find fulfillment from an under-the-sun uh, perspective of life. Um, having at your disposal wine, women, and wealth. It all leads to one conclusion, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher. He lays it out right there in chapter 1. So we've learned that a materialistic um, view of life, a hedonistic pursuit of life, um, proves to be empty, proves to be pointless. And in chapter 2, we hear him say, I hated life, chapter 2, verse 17, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? So we looked at the vanity, we looked at the toil, we looked at the perplexity, and then we saw the swing of the pendulum of perspective from an under-the-sun perspective to an under-heaven perspective, that is, above the sun. Um, And that expression, under-heaven, is placed um, in deliberate contrast to the phrase, under-the-sun. And that is to elicit God's presence, highlighting the futility of, of human existence when the creature lives either in denial of God or lives in a way that simply disregards um, his word and his will for our lives. So the preacher, he he laid down the facts of life and time, seasons of life, 
um, that they are in accordance with God's providential plan. And he expresses God's rule and reign by that very famous phrase in chapter 3, verse 1, that says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. He says, for everything there is an appointed time and there is a purpose for every matter, he says, under heaven. And of course, the purpose being spoken about there is not your purpose or my purpose, but God's purpose. Okay, We looked at that. God is sovereign. Look at verse 11, chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He's talking about the work that God does from beginning to the end, and in a theological sense, he's referring to the decrees of God, and that is God determined all things before creation. He formed a plan and ordained that plan. He set that plan into motion, so that all events that take place in history are according to his purpose, as events and time cannot be separated. Okay, so the perspective we're given is that God, who rules from above the sun, is in absolute control of everything that happens under the sun, down here on earth. So one of the recurring themes in Ecclesiastes from this under heaven, that is above the sun worldview, is that we ought to enjoy life. We ought to enjoy our work. We ought to enjoy our food and drink, and we ought to enjoy marriage. We've seen this over and over again. Because the understanding that we ought to have is that everything we have here is very temporary. So he says... Enjoy it, because it is from the hand of God. So we've been given the know-how, that is, um, how we ought to live um, in the time that we've been assigned here on earth. That time is very short, it's fleeting, regardless of how long one may live, it is very brief. So the preacher, having studied the people around him, having studying, studied uh, kings and people in positions of authority, Um, he's determined that oftentimes things do seem to be upside down. In chapter 6, he says, or in verse uh, 6 of of chapter, um, I think it's chapter 10, folly is set in many high places and the rich sit in a low place. So things there seem to be upside down. So the wisdom then he gives for skillful living amidst things that are beyond our control, um, he says that, that skillful living is, is living according to God's word applied in the concrete realities of life. Folly is just the opposite. It's unskilled living. It either denies God or denies uh, or refuses to apply God's word to those concrete realities of life. And folly most oftentimes shows up, he says, by way of relationships. The, the, the fool in his folly is always striving. He's always at strife or in contention with, with others. So we've seen that laid out. And then chapter 10, verse 1, we're reminded that wisdom is always vulnerable to folly. He, re, he says that a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. It only takes one act of folly to ruin a reputation that has taken a lifetime to build. 
And then the last few weeks, we looked um, at an assortment of proverbial sayings, um, sketching for us the portrait of, of a fool. We, we saw his malicious intent, um, and that eventually calamities will overtake him. For instance, uh, he, he digs a pit or a trap for his neighbor to fall into, and he himself is the fool that falls into that trap. And that was according to the providential justice um, of God. Um, the fool's tongue exposes him for the fool is that he is as, as words just overflow from his mouth with, with no real content. He lacks wisdom, but he never ceases to run his mouth. And then also the fool, because of his sloth, uh, his roof caves in because he's lazy. He's an undisciplined sluggard who refuses to maintain the upkeep of his house, so his roof caves in. The fool is weary from his work. It's not because he works hard, but because he's fooling around when he ought to be working hard. The fool also curses the king who rules over him, but it's only to his own ruin. And we pointed out there are those today who who never cease to curse the government, and they're oftentimes the ones who are sponging off the government. That is a fool in his folly. So we've been reminded that, that part of wisdom is understanding the limits of our own wisdom. Amen? Because there are certain things that are simply beyond our control. He says in chapter 8, verse 17, Then I saw the work of God that man cannot find out. The work is done that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. In other words, there are things beyond our control. Wisdom acknowledges the fact that there are limits to our own wisdom. So with that behind us, we we enter into the final stretch of Ecclesiastes. And in the midst of life's uncertainties, the limits that we cannot know, absolutely, when we don't know, it can be easy for us, and here's the theme, it's easy for us to put up our defenses, to hunker down, and to look out only for ourselves. So in chapters 11 and 12, the, the preacher brings his book, or I guess we would call it his sermon, to a close. So he summarizes and, and he exhorts his audience now, he exhorts them to action. This is a call for action. With all of this wisdom, with all of this know-how that's being given to us uh, by the preacher, his exhortations are now based on everything that he's taught us for, chap- for 10 chapters. And he concludes now with a call for living. And it's a very particular um, kind of call. So he points us to the fact that life in this world is not the end of all things because there's a life to come in another world. So he reminds us again, while you're here, work hard, enjoy life, consider the day of your death. This is a final call for those of us who are the Lord's to trust in God along the way. So this is a kind of an all-for-nothing conclusion that he's drawing for us here. This is an all-or-nothing conclusion to the whole matter that he's taught thus far. I mean, after all, when we think about it, the commitment our Lord demands, Deuteronomy 6, Matthew 22, you know, loving with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, the Lord 
our God? That's the only appropriate, re- appropriate response, right? All or nothing. So all or nothing is also the proper way to live in the midst of unpredictability. Okay, that's kind of what we've seen. Life is unpredictable. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. So commit everything you have to the here and now. Okay? Live it up, but live rightly. All right? So in this section, in above the sun, under heaven, worldview, this then would lead to a life of, here it is, bold enterprise. Bold enterprise. That will lead to joyful enthusiasm and watchful obedience instead of vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So a a God-centered life is a life of meaning. It's a life of purpose because he's created us and he's ordained all things and we will stand accountable before him with that which he's given to us here in this very brief span known as life. So here now we see enthusiasm for living from a God-centered worldview. That's the message of the last two chapters. And today, for God's people... The call is to live a life of bold enterprise. So as he comes to the end of his sermon, notice chapter 11, verse 1, begins with an imperative. Okay, here's a command. Notice, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. So here's a a spirited exhortation after all of that. All of that teaching, he says, cast your bread. Now, cast here is not in the sense of throwing, just chucking something. But this is the sense of sending something. Sending something forward for a particular purpose. This isn't a haphazard throw. But you want to send it forth with thoughtfulness, with purposeful intent. And the, the, imagery, the imagery here comes from uh, the seafaring commerce community. As ships are sent out full to receive a return. As a matter of fact, the NIV um, translates verse 1 as follows. It says, ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. So he says, cast your bread upon the waters. Waters is lots of waters. That's the sea, speaking in the image of of commerce in the ancient world. And this is where the merchant would send out, in bread here would be grain, send out grain onto ships on a commercial venture. For instance, when we read uh, 2 Chronicles 9, when we read uh, 1 Kings 22, we're told there that Solomon, he had a fleet of ships. And he would send out to the area of Tarshish, which is you know, like a generic term for you know, the ends of the earth. And those ships, we're told, would be gone for three years. Notice, Second Chronicles 9.21. Once every three years, the ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. In other words, Solomon was deeply involved in international trade with countless merchants 
And then, just as now, um, one of the main trade uh, commodities was that of grain. So they would load their grain ships. They would send them off. So we would see here the Israelites are casting their bread, their investment, upon many waters. So he says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. For, the word for shows us the necessity for sending it. Right? For you will find it after many days. Hey, if you want it back, you have to send it out. If you want a profit, you have to invest it by sending it out. So if you're going to receive for your grain, profit, value, proceeds, then you got to let go of it. A bold venture. It's a bold, it's a bold venture of faith what we see. It's a bold undertaking. And the trust here is in the good providence of God. To trust in the good providence of God. And then it says you will find, you will receive a return. You will find it, he says, after many days. And find doesn't mean to stumble upon. It means it returns more value. Returns a profit. So think about it. Uh, sea trade in the ancient world was, was a great risk. Journeys were long. They were hazardous. Um, who, you can't predict the weather. Well, not in that day anyway. So committing them, your grain, to a ship was a great risk. The owners had no idea once the ship leaves port as to how they were faring. Sidney Grandanis writes that, and I quote, many shipwrecks dot the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. So here you are, you're, you're loaded down with great wealth, you leave port, a storm comes, you know, storm comes, the ship sinks, you lose everything. Or pirates come alongside, commandeer the ship, steal the cargo, it's a loss. So you're putting the goods in the, in, in the hands of a sea captain. You're putting your goods in the hands of, of uh, workers far away. They could be unscrupulous workers. And it's gone. So it was a bold venture to invest your grain. So all of this is outside of your control. Here now, it's in the hands Merchants. So no, nothing is for certain. That's the point. Um, yet the promise of high return is what's being held out. That, that's the idea. Cast your bread. Okay, here's the conclusion to the whole matter. He's wrapping this thing up. So let's look at life. He said, invest in this life because it's very short. Throw it all out there. Cast it out. Send it out. Boldly. So the exhortation isn't merely for those uh, who are you know, trade merchants. It's not merely for those who are businessmen. It certainly applies to that. But he's illustrating for us bold enterprise in our own personal lives. That's the idea. Our personal lives of faith. And most specifically, of course, is in serving God. Serving the Lord, our Creator, our Redeemer. Serving Him with all that we have and the time that's allotted to us here in this life that is fleeting. Michael Eaton writes this, 
Koaleth's concern is that the wise man will invest everything he has in the life of faith. Philip Ryken, he says, and I quote, God invites us to be venture capitalists for the kingdom of God. I like that. Venture capitalists for the kingdom of God. So essentially here, the preacher, he exhorts us to to commit ourselves totally to the enterprise of serving our Lord. Life is short. There's no time for procrastination. Serve him fully today because tomorrow's not promised. And again, what would the fool do? He talks about tomorrow, every day. Tomorrow never comes for the fool. Think about a bold enterprise. I, I think about this church and the bold enterprise of raising a large family. For those of you who have a number of kids, you've entered into a bold venture. Amen? There are many hazards along the way, many unknowns. So you've invested, by having many children, you've invested all your grain, all your bread, all your effort. It's a good investment. It's a bold venture. You think about... You think about furthering the kingdom by way of church ministry. You advance the kingdom of God, um, remaining committed to the teaching and preaching of the whole counsel of God as a bold venture. And that is to do without bells and whistles, okay? without fog machines, without comedy, without entertainment. To stick to the word of God is a bold venture because the return may be very slow. Raising kids, the return could be very slow. You may not see it until many years down the line. So, therefore, patience is required. There's years of waiting. A lot of effort is involved. That's the idea. Hazards, maybe, they will be experienced along the way. So, the idea is you cannot allow delay to kill the vision. We mustn't let delay kill the vision. You know, when the, when the Corinthians were becoming weary in, in serving, carrying out their venture of faith, they became very tired. You know, uh, serving God in a God-rejecting world, serving God in, in an evil, sinful world, you become tired. And when the Corinthians were beginning to lose their traction, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's a bold venture. Cast your bread upon the water. Send your grain out. So this is a call to live with certain, a certain type of boldness. It's been said by one John Shedd. A ship in a harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. So the truth is, is that any kind of investing requires faith. You know, we say nothing venture, nothing gained. No risk, no reward. So Solomon says here, you look, don't play it safe. Take risks. However, however... He also says, work to venture prudently. Prudently. To to endeavor sensibly, verse 2. Notice, 
So after he says, cast your grain out, cast your bread out, he says, give a portion to seven or even to eight. For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Here again, these, this is the idea, uh, our situations that are, that are beyond our control. This is the unpredictability of life. In other words, don't commit all your bread or grain to one ship. Spread it out to seven or eight. Spread it out to seven or eight. You know, we'd say don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? You put them all in one basket, you drop the basket, everything breaks. So put them in two. Spread it out. If you place it all in one ship and the ship sinks, you've lost it all. If pirates commandeer that ship, you've lost it all. Spread it out, he says, to seven or to eight. We don't know what may lie ahead. There may be war. There may be pestilence, famine, financial collapse. So the idea, spread it out. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 15, talk about things being beyond our control. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. So calamities will come. We don't know when. We don't know where they'll hit, but they will hit. So spread it out. So we've already learned that although we don't know when or where it may hit, our view, who live from a perspective under heaven, Our view is not one of fatalism, amen? It's not a fatalistic reaction that causes us to throw our hands up in the air and disengage and say, hey, God's going to do whatever he's going to do, so why do anything at all? No, that's folly. That's folly. Instead, chapter 9, verse 10, we were reminded, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. There is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Okay, that is to the grave. Okay, Sheol, the place of the dead. You're going to die. So God has a purpose for our calling in life, and we're responsible for what we do with that which he provides. That includes our gifts, spiritual gifts. So here in these verses, we're, we're called to invest it all, but to invest it widely and wisely. Widely and wisely. So we're to take our time, we're to take our talent, we're to take our wealth, we're to invest it wisely for greater things beyond ourselves. You know, unfortunately, far too many Christians, and this is a big unfortunately, hold to a completely different view towards spiritual business. They're not willing to take any risk at all when it comes to spiritual matters, stepping out. They wait for perfect conditions. If you wait for perfect conditions, it ain't ever going to happen because conditions aren't always perfect, amen? You'll never move any, any way forward. You're talking about tomorrow till you die. And you end, up, you end up waiting forever, you die, and then you'll stand before the Lord who said, talked about talents, and there's the guy standing there in Matthew 25, he says, well, I was afraid, so I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. See, here it is, 
It belongs to you. Depart from me, you wicked. So he says, be prudent, but don't be so, okay, don't be so overly cautious that that you never act, that you never move. Notice verse 3. He said, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth, and if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. That's kind of strange, but it's just a metaphor. He's changing the metaphor from commerce to agriculture, and in agriculture, everything's dependent upon the weather, right? It's the great unknown. You know, will there be abundant rain this season? Will we have drought this season? Will a tornado come and wipe everything out? Will we have hail that'll kill my crops? It's unknown. But even in the midst of the unknown, here, our duty is to venture boldly, courageously. Because if you don't, you're never going to reap. You'll never reap. You never reap if you sit back in fear, waiting for purpose, per, perfect conditions. So here, the lack of engagement comes from a fear of the unknown. So if you're preoccupied with potential dangers, which with hazards or misfortunes, right? If a tree falls in that day, whatever way it falls, it lies there. I mean, you, you can't just come with a crane and pick it up and move it took a lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of diligence to, to, to chop that thing up and move it. So if you're always you know, standing around worrying about what may happen, you, you, know, you, you give yourself to procrastination and you, you, you dither and you delay until you die. Now, he applies that metaphor in verse 4. Notice, he who observes the wind, he will not sow. And he who regards the clouds, he will not reap. So in other words, don't be consumed by potential hazards. Now this doesn't mean, beloved, we don't give consideration or pay attention to to surrounding conditions because we know if you're wise, you will. The idea here, though, this, this is a continuous non-stop action of this individual. That's what's being described here. All this person does is observe the wind. All this person does is look up and ponder the clouds and wonder what will happen. So if that's all he does, he never sows, and if you never sow, you will never reap. If you wait for everything to be perfect until everything is perfectly aligned, You'll never, here, make the venture. There's no fail-safe venture in this life, amen? There's no fail-safe venture in the universe. So don't sit around contemplating every little circumstance because you'll never move. That's the idea. You know, I remember when I was given the keys to the old building on Marina Boulevard, we didn't have a team in place. I just took over this church, the pulpit ministry, and, man, doctrine was upside down, and I knew we had to do all this changing, but there's a lot of things I don't know how to do, like financial stuff is not my thing. And I unlocked the door to my office, and I remember thinking or saying to the Lord, Lord, if you don't provide all these things, this is going to fail. 
So I'm trusting you. You're going to provide every, everybody we need. And then you just move forward. And God blessed us. Amen. Amazing. Ten years later. So next now, here, man, we're running out of time. Boy. Next, he returns to the theme of verse 2. Okay? Not knowing the ways of God. Okay? J- just that makes something a bold venture. We don't know the ways of God. That's a venture in itself. To, to step out by faith every day, not knowing exactly what he's going to do. He provides us this illustration of life and the development of a child in the womb. Okay? The development of a child in the womb, which is a co-venture with our Creator. Human beings make babies. Verse 5. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So one of the most beautiful works that God does in all the world is the forming of a baby in the womb of its mother. So the picture here is how mankind works together with the Creator to bring about human life. It's a joint venture. So we work together with God to bring about another image bearer of God. It's a beautiful picture. And even though we don't understand the mysteries involved, God brings it to pass. Notice here, spirit to the bones. That phrase there is the the soul that is wrought within the child. That's a mystery to you. It's a mystery to me. Theologians have been pondering that for centuries, and they'll never figure it out. So the origin of a child's soul, though we do not know how God does it, we don't step back and say, well, then we're just not going to make any babies. That's the idea. God ordains all things. He who ordains all things, he also ordains not only the end, but also the means to the end. So here's a joint venture. He's made us as his fellow laborers, if you will, with our creator. That was the original plan of man, was it not? Delegated him authority. Delegated authority on this earth. So with that in mind then, he says, look, now just remember, there's certain mysteries in life. It's Deuteronomy 29, 29, right? There's certain mysteries you're never going to understand. So because of that, don't step back and disengage, but engage boldly. Okay, so then there's this call for diligence. He's basically saying, get to work then. <laughs> don't stand around looking at the trees and the clouds. You know, the tree, oh, wow, there's wind out there today. There's clouds coming in. Let's go hunker down in the basement and do nothing. Verse 6. In the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Okay, so he says, look, spread it out. Be bold. Spread it out. And though disaster may come, a tornado may come, hail may come, a storm may come, a drought may come, spread it out because you don't know if sowing your seed in that field will prosper or if that field will prosper or if both will prosper. 
Just do it. So, in other words, do your duty, he says. Venture out. And again, we want to apply this not only to business practices, but to to practical spiritual life in the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? God decides which field he'll bless. Do your duty and sow in all your fields. Do what is your duty to do. No no, no half-hearted approach, he says. Let me close with a great story. It's the story of, uh, his name is Luke Short, who came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ at the age of 103. And he at one time sat under the ministry of uh, the Puritan John Flavel. Short, 103, was sitting under a hedge in Virginia when he happened to remember a sermon he had once heard preached by the famous Puritan John Flavel. Okay? As he recalled the sermon, Short asked God to forgive his sins right then and there through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He lived for three more years, and when he died, the following words were inscribed on his tombstone. Here lies a babe in grace, aged three years, who died according to nature, aged 106. But here's the remarkable part of the story, and I stole this from Philip Ryken. The sermon that old Mr. Short remembered had been preached 85 years earlier back in England. Nearly a century had passed between Flavel's sermon and Short's conversion Okay, that is between the sowing and the reaping. So, cast your bread upon the waters, give a portion to seven or even to eight. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. What God will do you never know, but you will never reap if you never sow. That's the idea. I think the, the, the truth that, that unlocks chapter 11 is stated in two phrases that we're going to look at next week. And that is in verse 9 and 10. In verse 9, it, it says, rejoice. In other words, be happy. And in verse 10, the other phrase is remove vexation. Okay, that is banish anxiety. You want to cast something away? Cast away your anxiety. Rejoice in the Lord. Be, be happy because when, 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 when that happens, it in, unlocks the ability to do what he says, what he commands us to do in verse 1. It's cast your bread upon the waters. If you're locked and gripped by anxiety, you know, anxiety puts a stranglehold on people. You'll never move. And anxiety zaps one of joy. Anxiety chokes joy out, kills it. So therefore, rarely will you set out to accomplish anything, especially in the kingdom or for the kingdom. Amen?
So that's the idea. So we'll look at that next time.